Blog Talk Radio. Hi everyone, this is Camille from sunny California, and you're listening to the Coffee Chat with Camille show, which is the podcast series that interviews various guests about real-life topics for people who love to learn. Hey, happy Friday. Um, This is Camille, your host, and I am going to have a very special guest and a a very special topic. Why do we keep losing 22 veterans a day? How do we change this with Joseph Malone? I give you a biography about Joseph. He is a CEO and founder of Southern Cross Safety Academy, a personal safety training company that provides life-saving mindset and skills training and skills training to private citizens and corporations. Sorry about that. Since leaving the military, Joe has provided customized training programs to private citizens and corporations around the world on mental resiliency and self-reliant personal safety skills. He is the published author of The Women's Safety Guide, The Women's Safety Guide, excuse me, and aims to train over 1 million citizens in personal safety and awareness. Joe has a bachelor's degree in Homeland Security and Emergency Management is an International Board Certified Protection Professional, or CPP, through ACES, is a nationally registered EMT, a certified mobile forensic examiner, CCME, a NAWI certified rescue diver, and a certified technical rescue team leader, an NRA firearms instructor, and uh, I'm going to say ASHI, but A-S-H-I, C-P-R, and first aid instructor, and Illinois Conceal, Conceal Carry Firearms Instructor, a federal firearms licensed weapons dealer, an NRA certified range safety officer, and founder of Southern Cross Safety Academy. You can reach Joe at directly at southerncross.company or j.malone at southerncross.company. Okay, so we're going to go ahead. I can see that he's in the studio, and I apologize for the reading today, but I don't have my glasses. I can't find them. Uh, One moment, okay. Hi, Joe. Welcome. Hey, how are you doing today? Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. And I just want to go ahead and get into the interview. Why do yeah. you see <laughs> why do you see so much publicly displayed violence in society? Well, we see a lot of publicly displayed violence for a couple of different reasons. One being the news uh, negative propagation. If it bleeds, it reads. So they always want to focus on the worst parts of society. And the reason behind that is it resonates with our survival instincts. So we're going to tune in much longer to negative information rather than positive information. And the other part to this current 
situation in terms of publicly displayed violence is that we have a major identity crisis going on in, in the United States of America, particularly mm-hmm. through my, my opinion and my research and, and my experience is that we're too soft on our kids. We keep coddling children, telling them it's okay to feel however they want to feel, that it's okay to be emotionally erratic. We're creating this uh, confusion with gender identity, and we're ignoring just the principles of life and existence, and that confuses a lot of young adults as they grow into adulthood. And so by not being capable of managing one's emotions, by not having a sense of identity, which subsequently means that we don't have a sense of purpose, Whenever they grow into the adult age, all this also coupled with social, so a lot of social isolation, not just because of the COVID years, but just in general because of technology and social media, we're more isolated from one another than we ever have been before. That has a lot of negative neurochemical effects within the brain. But mm-hmm. when we're raising children to be emotionally erratic and identityless and purposeless, and they're socially isolated, They grow into adulthood, and then when they get chastised at their first job because they're performing poorly or when they get picked on by somebody in college or later on in high school, they lash out by going out and getting a hold of a firearm and shooting up a bunch of people, or they just behave habitually in a manner that says, well, I could do whatever I want. I've been told this my whole life. And so they go out and they think that the idea of manhood or womanhood is to victimize other people at their expense. Thank you so much. And what can we do to stop school shootings? With school shootings specifically, there's a couple of really simple things that we could do. One, schools need to be held accountable for their lack of emergency operations procedures. A school lockdown in the midst of an active shooter is the single worst idea that we could ever do. I don't know who came up with that. I don't know why they still do it. But time and time again, most people get killed while during the initial outbreak of gunfire, like within the first, like, 30 seconds, or while hiding. Yet we keep telling kids to lock themselves into schools and just sit there and hope that the person who literally the last few moments of their life, the shooter, their whole purpose and objective in life is to kill as many people as possible. And we're telling our our kids just to sit there. It makes no sense. So there's a lot of really easy ways that we could evacuate kids from the school, get them to a pre-designated rally location. Law enforcement can isolate the threat. So that's the first thing. The second thing we could do is we could stop coddling our kids and providing these quote-unquote safe spaces. Look, I'm not a fan of bullying. I'm an anti-violence advocate, 100%. I've seen war. I've stood over dead people. It's disgusting. It's a horrible thing. It's just a waste of life. But there is strength that comes from uh, tribulation and trial. When we are capable of facing adversity as human beings, it helps us develop mental and emotional resiliency. And with mental and emotional resiliency, then we don't get so offended by everything that everybody says. And so I think that we need to stop intervening with every single playground bully incident. I think that there are certain thresholds, like if a kid's getting the crap kicked out of them, sure, so stand up for the kid. But in terms of you know, pushing kids around and having them bully each other, I think that there's a lot of strength that comes out of that. I was bullied as a kid. Mike Tyson was bullied as a kid. A lot of people who have incredible success in their life were bullied as kids, and they faced that adversity with 
tenacity. And through that, they became a much stronger person. So that's just two things that I think we could do right there. Okay, thank you. And then how does someone overcome suicidal um, ideations and depression? That's a great question. So I suffered with this a lot in my life. When I was a young kid, I got addicted to hard drugs at a very early age, heroin and, and crack, cocaine, all that stuff. But I was doing dope at a very early age, became very depressed, joined the Marine Corps. And then after my time in the Special Operations Unit, I was leaving the military and, and I was horribly depressed. I was drinking myself basically to death. I was trying to kill myself. I almost did kill myself one night. And through my experiences in the traumatic brain injury clinic, because I was getting some medical attention from some neurologists and from learning a little bit more about neuroscience on my own in the quantum field, what I discovered was we are emotional creatures as human beings. We receive information to the emotional part of the brain two times faster than the logical part of our brain. So our consciousness being the logical part of our brain doesn't even get the information first. It's playing catch up to our emotions. That's why we emotionally respond to things. What we could do though as human beings is we have the amazing ability to consciously intervene against our thought patterns. So for example, what happens if you do something 10,000 times over and over again? Are you familiar with what happens when you do something that many times? No. <laughs> Other than it becomes it's a habit. It. Exactly, right there. It becomes a habit. <laughs> and when we have a negative self-talk, which we're constantly talking to ourselves within our mind, within our consciousness, when we have negative self-talk, we develop a negative self-belief system. The way the brain functions is that it puts things into the subconscious to form a habit so it doesn't have to burn as many calories because conscious thought burns calories, subconscious thought burns less calories, and the brain always wants to conserve energy. Now, don't get me wrong, you're not going to shed pounds by thinking hard. It's, it's just a survival <laughs> mechanism built in the brain, and, and it does burn a lot of calories per gram of body weight for any other organ, but generally speaking, you're not going to shred fat uh, just by thinking hard. But I digress. Two, when we have a negative self-talk and we talk to ourselves negatively every day thousands of times, we're programming our subconscious mind and our belief system, our habits, to have a negative self-image, a negative self-belief system. However, we can consciously intervene against those thoughts. So when I'm driving down the road and somebody cuts me off and I get angry and frustrated, I could tell myself in that moment to consciously intervene against that negative thought pattern and say, you know what? If this person gains validation out of that action, I kind of feel bad for them. Same thing goes for when I'm sitting alone and it's starting to get late at night. I used this when I was quitting drinking. When I started to get depressed and all these old emotions were starting to rise up to the surface and I was thinking about all these negative past experiences and how I could have done better, I told myself, stop. Stop thinking that right now. Consciously intervene in a positive way. And then I start to go into a method called t replacing and tethering. I'm not going to dive too far into it here today just for the sake of time, but what you could do with this mm -hmm. conscious intervention is instead of thinking about experience X that was horrible, like, for example, my best friend is dead, and when I think about all the things I could have done to possibly help save him, I tell myself to stop. I consciously intervene against that habitual thought process, and I think back to a time where I had a small victory or a win or a great victory, any sort of positive experience in the past, and I allow myself to feel the emotion associated 
with that positive experience. The wind on my face as I stood on the cliffs in Ireland or, you know, traveling across Brazil, surfing the waves in the ocean out there. It could be the simplest things or the most, profet- or most prolific things like the birth of my son. And in that moment, when you consciously intervene against that negative thought, you're replacing that negative with the positive. And when you allow that emotion to overcome you with the positive experience, you're now tethering your current situation, your current circumstances to that Mm -hmm. positive experience. And when you do that enough times, you build the habit into the subconscious to where you begin to intervene against those negative thought processes automatically. That's just one really simplified way as to how people can overcome their depression and suicidal ideation. You got to restructure your belief system, the way that you view and talk to yourself in order to become somebody new. Because when you do that, it actually physically changes the brain. It changes the physical structure of your brain. And so you are actually becoming, Mm -hmm. even though it might not be totally visible on the outside in time, it would be because you just vibrate and radiate different energy, but you are physically changing the person who you are. Wow. That's excellent. And then what is the biggest problem veterans face when leaving the military? Yeah, so it is a lot of the negative belief systems, the negative self-talk, the loss of purpose. You know, one thing about going into combat was you're constantly forced to live in the moment. And when we're capable of living in the moment, we have no depression. Depression is reflection upon the past. Anxiety is projections into the future, which most of the times we project negatively by default due to our survival mechanism. So going into combat, being a part of a strong, larger organism, being important is really, you know, important to human beings. And this kind of even ties into the violence we see with kids in school violence when they have purposelessness. Veterans face the exact same problem when they leave the military. They are no longer as purposeful as they were. They feel a sense of purposelessness. And when you're dealing, like, with the current Afghan debacle and Iraq, you know, these wars, I myself can speak from experience where you look back and you're like, what was all that for? It was pretty pointless right now at this stage in age. I mean, quite honestly, it was. And so there's a little bit of guilt and and sadness that comes along with that, compounded with you start smoking a little bit of weed when you get out of the military, you start drinking a little bit of booze, and then you start getting out of shape, you have no direction, maybe you go to school for a little bit, you're just thrown a million resources, but you're not shown how to navigate the waters of those resources, and things compound really quickly. And look, I'm not saying that you can't do any of those things, but what I am saying is that they contribute negatively to the current state of existence within that veteran as they're transitioning out. Transitioning out of the military is a very scary time, tumultuous time. I've done it twice because I had a small break in service. And if veterans don't have the right mindset and the right belief system in place, just like the second time when I got out, I was dead broke, $65,000 in debt, staying in a tent on a beach, ready to blow my brains out, quite honestly. And in order to avoid going into those types of positions, veterans need to have good self-talk, good belief systems. They need to maintain good positive momentum on their way out. And they need to have a sense of purpose and community. And that's really where a lot of my uh, program started from Warriors in the Garden, is that I wanted to help veterans transition and navigate the waters of resources specific to them and their geographic region for their life goals, 
for their current circumstances, not just a blanketed type of resource. But it always comes back to, in all of these cases, by the way, you must, on top mm-hmm. of the mindset, be, be physically fit. Nutrition, diet, physical fitness is absolutely imperative if you want to see expedited and compounded results. And I help people do this every single day, all day long. It's what I love doing. It's, uh, it's remarkable when you could pull somebody from the depths and the pit of disparity and wanting to end their life. And then they're looking at you saying, I never would have imagined I'd have so much energy, so much joy, so much vigor, so much purpose. We as human beings are social creatures. We need to have that purpose. Okay, thank you. Excellent. And then um, how does someone change? So it always starts with an emotional evocation of some kind. So for me, it was waking up on the floor with a gun in my mouth and my fingers still on the trigger. I was uh, very intoxicated, and a, a buddy knew I was in distress came to help me. I knew that I had to change, and I didn't want to feel the way that I felt anymore because I felt horrible for a long period of time. So I got angry with myself, and I became emotionally evoked, emotion. All things in the universe are created from energy, matter in the form of energy. And so, or sorry, energy creates matter. So matter is a form of energy just condensed or or changed in some way based off the rate of vibration. That's a scientific fact and principle, matter created nor destroyed. So emotion is stands for the old Latin term of energy in motion. So when we become emotional, we become moved. That's where the saying, hey, I became moved by your speech. I became moved by that film. Because emotion, you became emotional, means that energy is in motion at a great rate of vibration. And so when you become emotional, it generates energy within oneself to begin to make change. And it must be incremental change, like Newton's law of motion, that which is in motion tends to stay in motion, uh, but you must develop momentum. You can't just immediately expect to do 10 million things, like you can't go to the gym and just bench 315 for 100 times. You must first go to the gym and maybe even bench the bar by itself. And then after a few months of sore and re- soreness and recovery, maybe you could put 95 pounds on there and so forth and so forth. You must gain momentum. And the way that I recommend people do this is, one, stop drinking if you're drinking. Stop drugs or any vices. Allow yourself to feel the pain because that's the emotional evocation. Then start to go to bed early. For me, at the time I took sleeping medicine, I went to bed at like 7 p.m. and I would get up at 3. Now, I've, I've, this is years ago, five years ago, and I've been doing it ever since. So I, go to, I have a really good nighttime routine. I don't really get on the computer too much. A little guilty of that with my business and my work. But for anybody just starting, you got to be strict. So no phones, no blue screens, an hour before bed. When you get home from work, turn all the lights in the house down. Listen to only calming music, no news, no, no movies or, or angry music. Drink some chamomile tea. You know, get yourself into a solid sleep routine and go to bed very early. Wake up very early. When you wake up early, there's no distractions. And then don't look at your phone for at least 30 minutes, at least. But then drink a tall glass of water. That right there, developing that nighttime routine, going to bed early, getting up early. I get up at about 2.33. This morning I got up at 1. But that's just because I'm very excited about today. I got a lot of great stuff going on, including this interview. 
Um, <laughs> when you get up early, you're just distraction-free. And then drinking water, we've lost sight of how important water is. We're made of 70% water. And so mm-hmm. by hydrating ourselves, our brain becomes more functional. And now we have time in the morning to focus on being productive and starting our day off at a higher rate of vibration, which means we'll, we'll last longer through the day before we crash due to the negative energy that surrounds us. Okay, thank you. How can we increase our situational awareness? Yeah, that's a great question. The way that I break this down whenever I'm doing training is you have to know what to look for, when to look for it, and exactly uh, when to look for it. So what to look for, when to look for, and where to look, sorry. What to look for, there's three types of behaviors, um, which is anomalous, obvious, and nefarious. When to look is at certain choke points or transitional spaces throughout your day, like gas stations or parking lots. And then where to look is within your immediate vicinity. So to summarize all of that, I tell people, look people in the face and eyes as you pass them by because it could save your life. When we look at people in the face and eyes as we pass them by, don't awkwardly stare, but just Literally look at somebody. About 1.28 seconds in American culture, you could look at somebody in the eyes as you walk past them. Give them a nod. Mm -hmm. Or for ladies, because sometimes it's a little, you know, guys could be misled by a a woman looking at them. So what I say is just look kind of like you're looking when you publicly speak. You look over somebody's head or have them in your peripherals. The goal is that you want people to know you are aware that they are there. Criminals always want the element of surprise. It's a primitive part of the brain that says they're likely to succeed and they won't get caught so the quality of their life won't be ruined. However, if they feel like you know they are present, they're going to most likely wait for the next person to walk by because most people have their faces in their phone these days uh, due to Mm -hmm. social anxiety and the way that our phones make us feel. They make us feel good, dopamine. But when people think that you are aware of their presence or they recognize that you're aware of their presence, they're much less likely to attack you. It's not a guarantee, but it is much less likely to happen to you. So on top of that, most people are good. The vast majority of people, especially in the United States of America, are good. And, and bad people usually congregate in certain geographic regions with one another. So when you actually look people in the face and eyes, you pass them by, give them a smile, a nod, a wave, what you actually discover is that even though maybe not everybody's nice, most people are good. And so that means that the majority of your interactions are going to be good. And so therefore the majority of your day is going to be a good, pleasant experience. And I really think that we need more of that as human beings. We got to start interacting with one another again, this isolation Mm -hmm. and the fear, you know, that's taken place between us. It breaks my heart. You know, I 13 years in the Marine Corps. I finally come back to the States. I finally look forward to enjoying life in 2020 breaks right out. And ever since then, we just haven't been able to get back. And I really hope that by raising situational awareness, we keep ourselves safer, we keep one another safer, because crime comes pretty obvious to see when you're looking around, just generally. And we'll notice that most people are good people. And so, therefore, it makes us feel more comfortable and confident within our fellow human beings. Perfect. And then why are people so ignorant of their surroundings these days? That's a great follow-on question. The way that our brain works is that it always is associating certain things with other certain things, feelings and emotions. 
So because of the negative news propagation machine that has been unleashed upon the public in the last few years, they're always promoting what? Negative information. Negative information, why? Because it resonates with the survivalist part of the brain. The brain has two priorities. Stay safe from harm and death and conserve energy. Going back to like the subconscious programming, it conserves that energy. So the priority, though, is always to stay safe and not die or get hurt. Well, if you're hearing news in the background and if you're watching news and if you're on social media, it's all this negative information about what? Humans doing bad things to other humans whether it's the war in Ukraine or politics or corruption or COVID or people who disagree with your belief systems because the algorithms in your, in your search engines, don't be mistaken, my friends, they are literally designed to make you tick. So they develop these avatars or these personas based off of your search history. And they say, Hey, you know, Joe uh, or, or this, you know, Bob or, or Ted, this makes them angry when they read it, and because it makes them angry, they scroll on it longer. So let's make sure we prioritize that information whenever they're searching for X, Y, or Z. Because of the negative association with all other human beings and all this negative behavior, we naturally become more anxious and fearful when we go out in public. Why? Because the subconscious brain, remember 10,000 times, and we look at our phone about like, I don't know, 1,000 or 3,000 times a day, so imagine all the repetitions you're getting every time you hear the news. Every single thing associates what? Negative people with damaging and, and death-related information. So your subconscious is super programmed right now to think that human beings are these bad, dangerous people. Even if you consciously know that most people aren't, your subconscious does not. And that's where a lot of social anxiety comes from. So when you go out into town and you're feeling this bit of social anxiety, the body always seeks balance, homeostasis. And, whoa, what do you know? We have these little blue screens in our pockets that ironically are designed to make us feel good. The way they look, they're sleek, the blue screen, the apps, the way the apps are shaped, every single gloss of the phone. It's all designed to do what? Release dopamine and dopamine and serotonin, the feel-good chemicals, if you will, are the direct opposite of your anxious chemicals so quite ironically the devices that make us feel the sense of social anxiety are physically responsible for making us feel the opposite the balance the homeostasis of feeling good so even though the information being propagated from it is negative the design in itself is made to make us feel good and so we subconsciously now rely upon that to find balance, even though it's somewhat artificial and superficial, we still find ourselves with our faces buried in our phone when we're driving. I mean, 5,000 people drive and die all the time. You know, it's illegal to do. Mm -hmm. We forget about it. People are walking in parking lots, crossing streets. You know, I do so many social experiments where I will walk up to people doing somewhat weird things and they don't even notice that I'm there. So what's that mean for a criminal? They could walk right up to you and they can victimize you however they want. You won't even see them coming. So I always encourage people, again, conscious intervention. When you're on your phone in the parking lot, just ask yourself why. Put it back in your pocket and then walk into the store, stand off to the side, out of the doorway, and then pull your phone back out. Put yourself in a safe location where you can't be snuck up on or cornered or hit by a car, and um, you know, then pull the phone out. Making those little small incremental steps and that conscious intervention, just like with the depression, just like with the violence, it all adds up eventually. 
and you find yourself breaking free of that that slavery, that tether. Okay, and then why do we see such a large spike in violent crime? Yeah, it so kind of going back to the school violence question, it's pretty similar. We we've begun to not punish youth and adults likewise uh the criminal prosecution system like i'm over here in chicago and they're they just released cash bail and they say that it's not for or they just abolished cash bail so they say that well if you do a violent offense you could still be held in jail until your court date with a cash bail a cash bond but then why are we even making these crimes eligible you know, aggravated criminal sexual assault, don't quote me on this because, you know, I, I uh, don't have it literally right in front of me, but from when I last read it, that means a woman can be sexually assaulted and the guy could be arrested, but, hey, he'll be back out on the streets shortly thereafter. Kidnapping was one of the crimes where they now make it eligible to abolish the cash bail. Second-degree homicide. So we're literally encouraging people to commit violent crimes because the reality of it is is that they get busted, so what? They'll be back out on the streets in a couple of hours, and they don't have to technically go back to court anyways. And that in conjunction with telling everybody that it's okay to feel however you want to feel and be emotionally out of control and you deserve you and everything is perfect in life, you don't have to work for anything, it's all just stimulating negative behaviors within the individual in conjunction with our lack of situational awareness and then in conjunction with all the fear and the negativity that's being propagated. It all really works together in this perfect soup of opportunity for people to behave violently and erratically and not ever be punished or face the consequences for it. And unfortunately, a lot of really innocent people and families are being victimized by it. Yes, yes. And then what can we do to stop workplace violence incidents? For workplace violence incidents, the best thing that you could do is there's is twofold. I break workplace violence down into intrinsic and extrinsic, and then I'll even take it a step further in this and talk about personal safety just a little bit because it always comes down to the individual. If you are a leader in a workplace, the best thing you can do is violence prevention training for your internal threats. So the worker who goes off the the rails and and does something uh, bad, horrible, violent. Prevention training is not PowerPoint presentations talking about past incidents and statistics. It drives me crazy. There's no OSHA requirement for violence prevention training. Like there's no enforcement behind it. And even if there was, they probably would still be getting it wrong because when I go around and work with corporations, they say, well, we've been doing violence prevention training. An online video is not violence prevention training. A PowerPoint with statistics is not violence prevention training. Having some 35-year law enforcement officer who retired come in and talk about, you know, violence is not prevention training. In order for it to be true prevention training, we need to be adjusting the neurochemical disposition, the chemicals in the human being that are associated with violence, agitation, aggression, erraticism, and we need to be replacing them with positive chemicals like oxytocin, the love chemical, connectedness one, serotonin, dopamine for reward. And the way that we do that is we make work fun again. We have training events and days 
where you do team-building exercise, leadership-building exercises, where people are communicating and collaborating and having fun with one another. And in those moments when you have those training days, which are themed violence prevention, but are still fun, engaging, leadership, team-building games, and an egg toss, a, a potato sack race, you know, some of these other types of communication exercises I run with a lot of my clients where we've got Lego sets or we're instructing one another how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You learn so much about one another in the areas of how they communicate, how they receive information, how you communicate, your preconceived notions. But most importantly, you're elevating positive neurochemicals due to having fun and connectedness with each other. And even though it's not a permanent fix, if you do one training a year, it greatly reduces the likelihood of violence in your workplace because it's hard to hurt people you feel a connection to. It's just scientifically proven. You cannot conduct violent behavior when you have these elevated neurochemicals in your system. Now, for external threats, companies need to have good emergency preparedness plans. But unfortunately, we see them say, run, hide, fight, show a video online, or they do another lockdown <laughs> procedure. Let me be very clear to everybody. And, and it's funny, too, because you're left because you're like, yeah, I know. Like, it's everywhere. These online videos, these 10-minute videos, it's not effective, people. And we're not even talking about the cost of liability and insurance and all these other uh, you know, it's $1.3 million on average per death per employee in a workplace. And that is not all the indirect costs. Um, that's just a very rough average back in 2019 Department of Labor. It's much worse than that these days. Talk to any human resource representative from uh, a major company. But what, what people need to understand is that distance equals time equals safety. The more distance you have between somebody trying to physically harm you, the more time you have to respond, react, and think, and the more time it takes for them to acquire you as a target. All of that adds up and equates to safety. So get yourself out of there as fast as possible. I would recommend jumping out of a second-story window if a shooter is walking down the hallway heading towards your room. I absolutely would. Or learn how to hide so you could fight that individual. Having People are so afraid to confront this topic of active shooter because they're afraid to get it wrong. Why? Because when people first started doing training, they hired the wrong people who were teaching the wrong things who are unqualified. If you want to hire a qualified person, look for a special operations veteran. We live in active shooter environments. Now, that's not to say every special operations veteran is going to be the best trainer or planner, but I'm telling you, it's going to definitely make a huge difference when you have somebody who's lived and experienced inside of these active shooter environments, not just experience, but actually plan repetitively hundreds of times for what to do in these incidents. If somebody doesn't tell you distance is your best advocate and how to get distance and how to gain accountability at a pre-designated rally location, then that's your first indication you probably shouldn't hire that person to develop your emergency operations procedures for workplace violence incidents. But I digress to having good, effective, preparedness plans. Now, this also comes into context with personal safety. The best thing any human being can ever do, and I'm not some crazy gun nut, all right? I'm not. I'm an anti-violence advocate. I hate violence. Mm -hmm. It's such a horrible, horrible waste of life when we, when we hurt one another. But we doesn't, it doesn't negate the fact that we need to know how to defend ourselves with lethality. And this was the other main portion of Warriors in the Garden, my, my coaching program, is aside from the mental attitude, your self-belief, 
Aside from your physical fitness, which we're not getting you, you don't have to be a super jacked bodybuilder, but just somebody capable of moving effectively to defend themselves or their loved ones. You know, you have to be lethal. And lethality is not just violent behavior. It's the all-encompassing behaviors and characteristics of discipline, mindset, control, emotional control. But yes, controlled violence in the, in the need that you are in the situation you need to behave that way. When people understand what to look for, have good situational awareness, have good de-escalation skills, but ultimately when people know how to use a firearm, the greatest personal safety tool ever created in the existence of ever mankind, when you know how to use it effectively and safely, then you are giving yourself the greatest opportunity and the greatest advantage possible. Almost every single active shooter is stopped by what? A person with a firearm, whether it's law enforcement, a private citizen. There's been a handful of incidents where an unarmed citizen or somebody armed with pepper spray has actually stopped active shooters, and they are incredibly brave souls. But the odds were stacked against them in that moment. And so when people understand how to use personal safety tools like a firearm, like pepper spray, in an effective and safe means, then they're giving themselves, they're empowering themselves, and society is empowering itself, which is really where the Second Amendment even comes from to begin with. Again, I'm not a huge gun now. I'm not telling you all these statistics and all the different types of guns out there and X, Y, or Z. I think people should have training. I think there should be background checks. I think there should be like a seven-day training evolution. Everybody needs to go through it for gun safety and gun ownership. I believe in that 100%. I don't think anybody should just be able to walk into a Walmart and get a gun. But I digress to you need to know how to defend yourself against violence and violent crime. It's absolutely imperative. And even furthermore, it sets the example for your kids. If you don't know how to defend yourself against violence, you're telling your kids it's okay for them not to know how to do that. And then when your kid gets victimized by a violent criminal, you have nobody else to look to except for yourself for not setting that good example. Okay. And then uh, for our last question, what was your military transition like, and what can people learn from from it? My military transition um, was pretty horrible, but again, through all adversity comes strength. I was incredibly depressed. I had a lot of survivor's guilt. I was drinking. I was on 26 medications. I was diagnosed with traumatic brain injury. I didn't know what that really meant at the time. It makes a lot more sense to me now. And I was engaging in a lot of high risk and dishonest behavior. And I ended up losing all my money, high option stock trading, went into debt, $65,000, told the military I was going to kill myself. My unit literally handed me papers and said, we'll just do it after you get out. And I was just an absolute mess. And Sometimes I still think there must have been some divine, I mean, there, for me, there was divine intervention, undoubtedly. I just haven't figured out a way to explain that uh, verbally to people mm-hmm. without just saying divine intervention, but there really was. I learned about the brain. I learned about quantum physics. It all started when I stopped drinking and I started getting up early and I was spending that quiet time as the world was still asleep alone to myself. And that's why I still do it to this day. I started to find certain behavioral, biohacking, health-related hacks, uh, some people like to call them, and I just really started to learn about myself and what caused me to feel the way that I felt, and 
I was able to eventually gain momentum. It wasn't just a smooth process back up, but this is where the new book that I'm, I'm working on, it doesn't have a title yet, but I think it's going to be the true self, aligning your actual self with your, the max potential of your life. You know, we have the true self and the actual self, and the actual self is where we currently find ourselves and how we feel and the things we do daily, and the true self is the maximum version, the best, greatest, most positive, impactful version of our self that we could be. And through the process and the pain and the homelessness and stopping the drinking but then reflecting internally, I was able to discover on my own and through the help of people like Ed Milet, Tony Robbins, Dr. Joe Dispenza, you know, these people I would find on, on YouTube, Earl Nightingale, Bob Proctor, Lewis Hughes, or how I forget his last name. But these people taught me how to correlate the scientific principles and the spiritual principles into my actual life and everyday life. And then I was able to gain really good momentum. Remember, it started off with just going to bed early, drinking water. And that turned into years and years now of compounded behaviors. But I would recommend to people that it, don't get overwhelmed thinking about the hundred things that you need to do. Just think about the five things that you don't need to do. You know, stop drinking, stop the drugs, stop numbing your pain with vices and pornography and, and sleeping around and lying to people. You know, stop lusting for the wrong things in life. It's not about what you need to do. It's about who you need to become. And when you realize that and you connect with that and you realize all of us are connected, the whole universe is connected through one energetic force field, then anything is truly possible. That was excellent. Um, thank you so very much for being here and for your expertise. And I just wanted to know, uh, I, I just had a quick question. What is your favorite coffee or hot beverage? Mm, well, it's funny. Why do you ask that question? Do you just see me drinking coffee all the time? <laughs> this is called Coffee Chat with Camille. And so it's just one of the questions that I asked my oh, guests. Obviously. Yeah, right. Like, get with it. Like it's in the title. Um, my favorite my favorite style of coffee uh, from from the, the regions of the globe is it's going to be like I love Kona coffee. It's so delicious. I love the lighter mm -hmm. uh, blends. Um, yeah. But yeah, Kona and Costa Rican blends. I, I love those. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And then uh, could you please let our audience know where, what your uh, social media handles are? Yeah, Instagram is where I'm the most active. Uh, Joseph underscore Malone underscore official on Instagram. And actually, we're about to kick off a dietary weight loss challenge. Uh, if anybody's interested, $1,000 cash prize. You have to put in $35 per month for the next three months. It goes from August 15th to December 15th. The person with the greatest progress, I give you the dietary plan and everything. And I've got pictures up there and proofs of concepts that I know what I'm, I'm talking about. So if anybody's interested, $1,000 cash prize, good little Christmas bonus. Um, and that's on Instagram. You can reach out to me, direct message me there. It's always me responding. And then Facebook, Joseph Malone, uh, YouTube, Southern Cross Safety Academy. And then, as you mentioned earlier, southerncross.company is, is the website. And I respond to all my messages personally. So if there's ever anything I could help anybody out with, mindset, you know, physical fitness, discipline, uh, skill development, family safety, 
never hesitate to reach out. It is my purpose for being here. I give away so much stuff for free because I believe in giving. It is it is what I'm here for on this earth. Excellent. Thank you so very much, Joe. It's been a pleasure. And please take care of yourself. And thank you for all that you do and for your service. Thank you so much, Camille. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Okay, everyone. That was the magnificent Joseph Malone. I mean, he's just, oh, my God, his interview was so powerful. I was taking notes. And so I've learned so much, and also I'm going to definitely share it, um, share a lot of what I've learned with my husband because he was in Operation Iraqi Freedom and uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. That's Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, I just think it's so important to support veterans, to recognize how much they help all of us. And also, as he explained, um, how if if we feel that, you know, we need good training um, about how to deal with a, a shooter, active shooter, our veterans are there, right? And so at any rate, but I don't want to go on and on <laughs> because uh, this is a very powerful interview and I hope that you, the listener, are enjoying it. You know what? You can um, listen to this interview and all of them. I'm almost at about 100 episodes now. And so um, you, if you just go to Coffee Chat with Camille.com, you will be able to uh, – oh, let me see one moment. looks like this – my time might have run out. I'm not sure. Oh, well, anyway, let me, <laughs> let, me, let me sum this up. Thank you all so much for listening. Please go to Coffee Chat with Camille.com to listen to more episodes, including this one. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, everyone, have a happy, happy Friday. Bye for now.